Please join me as we pray. Father, we, we again thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You teach us here about us, about what's wrong with us, about what we need, about who You are. We thank You that You've given us the privilege to come together and worship together and to study Your Word together, to sing praises, to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another, to, to sing praises to Your name, to just read Scriptures freely. We worship You this day. That's what we're here for. We're here to worship and praise You. And so we pray that You would transform us. We pray that You would teach us. We pray that You would convict of sin. You would show us Your righteous way. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, your resurrection to new life with Jesus has altered the walk that you live in this world. Before Christ, you were dead. You were spiritually unable to have a relationship with God, to please Him, to walk with Him. It was as impossible for you to live for God and to God as it is for, someone to, for a dead person to rise from the grave. Now throughout the book of Colossians, we have... Uh, we've learned of the doctrine of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is greater than all things. All of the other ways that the world offers for you to find a relationship with God lead to death because whether you are seeking spiritual life, through, um, <clears throat> excuse me, whether you're seeking, seeking spiritual life and growth through the rituals that you do, through grounding your, your life in the experiences that you have, or trying to please God through your dependence on rules, There is no other way except through the One who is preeminent over all of creation. The One who is the head of the church. The One who sustains us. There's a verse in the book of Acts that you really need to have memorized if you don't already. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. But it sums up uh, what we've looked at Colossians in this way. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Jesus is greater. He's greater than all else. And He is the only one who can give you spiritual life. He's the only one that can make you alive to God. Now in chapter 3, we've, we've turned a corner in the book of Colossians from learning about the theology of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is first, that Jesus is the greatest, that He's greater than all these other things that are proposed to you as a way that you can grow in your relationship with God. And we've turned from the theology of the preeminence of Jesus, and now we turn to how do I live that out? What does that look like in my life? If Jesus is truly greater, what has to happen in my heart? What has to happen in my actions? How do I live with other people as a result of who Jesus is? And the chapter begins with this statement. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Your resurrection to new life with Jesus has altered your present walk in this world. Your past justification through faith in Christ on the cross means that you died to who you used to be and you died to your former relationship to sin. That relationship that you once had has been completely altered. It still yells at you from the sidelines and tells you that I'm still your king. You need to do things my way, but he's no longer your master. It has changed your relationship with sin and it has changed your relationship to new life as one who was dead. 
And then your future glorification that will take place when Jesus appears assures you that you also will appear with Him in glory. And that infuses your life with purpose today as you serve Him. And so your resurrection to new life with Jesus has altered your present walk in this world. Now, last Sunday, we turned our attention to a series of commands that began in chapter 3, verse 5. And today, we're going to continue to see how our resurrection to new life means that we are called to die on purpose. We are called to die to that former life, to who we once were, to the old man, as Paul calls it. Because I am now alive to God, I must die to sin. In fact, our passage is a rather violent one. Uh, the command in verse 5 is to put these things to death. And it's the picture of a great battle, of the way that you treat a mortal enemy. And I shared, I shared my story with you about my mortal enemy, fire ants, and how they declared war on my family, and thus I purposefully chose to declare war on them. And it was an all-out battle every year. War with a mortal enemy does not include negotiations a war with an enemy of this nature that is out to destroy you does not mean making compromises or bargains. And so I can't come to the old man to my sin and say, ah, you know, maybe we can negotiate this and I can keep this little part and, and I'll serve Jesus here and the rest of things. There's no negotiation with sin. And so in verse 5, Colossians shows us that because we have been resurrected with Christ, we we must put to sin, put sin to death. And specifically, we looked at five words describing sexual sin. And verses 6 and 7 uh, go on to remind us that God's wrath is going to one day be unleashed on the world. God has made it clear that He will one day put an end to all sin and His wrath will be satisfied. And His judgment will fall on, on account of sins such as the ones that are mentioned here. But Paul says, and Colossians teaches us, that that's not you anymore. You are called to be different. This isn't the case for you. You are in Christ, and the wrath of God has already been satisfied. We, the theological word we use there is propitiation. You'll find that in Romans a couple times. Propitiation means that God's wrath was satisfied in the death of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus satisfied His wrath toward your sin, and when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. You once lived in these sins, and because of sin, you were spiritually dead. You, were, you also walked in these sins, but it is no longer so. And though we struggle against the flesh, you no longer walk in sin. Rather, you died to it, and your walk is in Jesus. And so once again, your resurrection to new life with Jesus has altered your present walk in this world. And God's solution, as we saw, His solution to sexual sin is, is painful. It hurts. It calls for some difficult choices. Clear choices to say, I'm going to kill this. I no longer have a part of this. But the command is clear. Put it to death. Kill it. Completely obliterate immorality in your life. You and I must die on purpose to our sin. And so as we continue in verse 8, Paul uses a new illustration. And he moves from this idea of killing something to putting it away. Putting it off. 
And the command is to put them all away. And he turns his attention to the evil attitudes and the evil speech. And he, uh, whereas he started with the actions in the, um, the previous list of sins, and he works his way to the heart issue of, of idolatry, here he's going to start with the heart issue of, of anger and, and work his way out towards the, the specific sins and how that manifests itself in our lives. Now I'd like to quickly clarify two mistakes that we can make here. Uh, first, as we, as we look at this idea of putting off, of putting things aside, God is illustrating this concept of dying to my sin. And, and He utilizes different illustrations from real life. And, and what He's trying to do is He wants us to give, a, to give us a clear picture of what it looks like to put, uh, to, excuse me, for us to die to our sin. And so I don't think that, the only sex, that it is only sexual sin that has to be put to death, and it's only evil speech and evil attitudes that have to be put off. Some sins affect us differently, and the temptations, they take hold of us in different ways. I, I get that. But the main point here in the passage points to one thing. Get rid of it. Kill it. Put it away. Throw it off. You have an anger problem? Kill it. You have a problem with lust? Cast it aside. Pick the illustration that makes the point clear. But whatever the sin is, that is no longer who you are. If you have been raised with Jesus, get rid of these things. Second, understand what it means when he says, put them all away in verse 8. When our kids were little, they understood the importance of putting things away. They were told, you know, you have to clean your room. You have to keep your room clean. And, and they would get some warnings. And they knew that if they were warned too many times, that mom and dad would come and help them clean their room. But our version of putting things away looked a lot different from them putting things away. You see, when they cleaned their room, toys were put away for future use. You put things in a toy box. You put things on a shelf. But when mom and dad came to clean the room, we came with a trash bag. And so we arrived, and when it got put away, Buzz Lightyear ain't coming back. Now, don't tell my children this, this because we selectively chose the toys. We would go through the room, and it was a great way of getting rid of the old Burger King trash. You know, those little cheesy things that fall apart, or, or those toys that were, were broken and, and needed to be uh, just gotten rid of. Uh, that's our secret, so don't tell Michael. Uh, when Colossians says, put them all away, Paul is not telling you to put your sins in a toy box so that you can pull it out later. The idea of putting away, the picture that he's using, is removing something. It, it, it's coming in with the trash bag. The word that, uh, the word that was used of, of casting someone in prison where they were forgotten about. They were left to rot in a cell. Um, or, or more commonly, it's used of removing dirty clothes. It, it, when you remove dirty clothes and you cast, you cast them aside, they're so filthy, so grungy, so horrible that there's no amount of washing that can restore these. And so one thing has to be done with it. You remove it and you cast them off. Think uh, Mike Rowe and the show Dirty Jobs. After you've been wading in sewage and crawling through hazardous waste, these are clothes that you can't put back on. They have to be destroyed and thrown away. So anger, lust, envy, sin isn't something that you put away under the bed. It's not something that you put in the toy box so you can pull it back out later when you want to play with it again. You remove it with the rest of the trash. And so he says in verse 8, 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's look at those. He says to put away anger. The, the word that's used here, it's, it's not anything unusual. It's the common word for anger. Uh, it refers to the heart attitude within a person. Not, not just the outward manifestation of that anger. When Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about adultery, He expressed that a lustful look already made you guilty of adultery itself. And in the same way, uh, sinful anger makes you guilty of murder. And He says, now I, I say... Excuse me. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He went on you know, name-calling, calling him fool. These outbursts of anger, you are guilty of murder in your heart, and God holds sin accountable. So sinful anger makes you guilty of murder. Now I say sinful anger because in the book of Ephesians, which was written as a parallel epistle about the same time that Colossians was written, uh, Paul addresses anger there too. And he says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. However, five verses before this, he also commands the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so clearly there, there's a righteous anger, a place for righteous anger. Jesus Himself uses the same word here. Jesus was angry at the hardness of men's heart. And Mark uses the same word that Paul uses here in Colossians. When children are murdered every day and we call it free choice, there's a place for righteous anger. And, and then to take that anger and, and do appropriate action. Action that's not sinful and, not, and we don't sin because of it. There's a clear place for righteous anger, but Scripture makes it clear that we are to be slow to anger. We are not to sin in or because of this anger. And we are not to let the sun go down on this anger. Even this righteous anger must be allowed, not be allowed to settle and to root itself into your life. However, I will say that each one of us face the temptation of anger on a regular basis. Many of us struggle with it every single day. And almost all of the time, it is not the righteous variety. And so we have to prayerfully evaluate. The first step in dealing with our anger and putting it aside is to prayerfully say, is this righteous? And typically the test of that is if it's pointed towards yourself and you're angry because of something that somebody did to you, that's typically not a righteous anger. If you are, if you are angered because the holiness of God is being violated, and I have to ask myself, am, am, I, am I righteously angry about this? Or am I doing something else? If the anger is righteous, then you choose your actions carefully and you act as a result in a manner that's appropriate. And then you don't let the anger remain kindled afterwards. But be angry and do not sin. For everything else, for everything else where you are just selfishly massaging that anger into something hateful, obey what we're commanded in Colossians and cast it away to be thrown away with rest of the trash. And so I would encourage you as we deal with anger and we deal with these other vices that he continues to talk about here, uh, these manifestations of that same anger, develop a strategy. Have a strategy for how you are going to deal with anger. 
make sure that you are, first of all, make sure that you are in Christ. If, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're still dead in your sin and you're not going to have the power to accomplish what's commanded here. Not truly. Make sure that you have react, excuse me, make sure that you are in Christ and that you react as one who is alive to God. And then learn to walk moment by moment, depending on the Holy Spirit. Remain grounded in Scripture. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. This is your food for daily nourishment. This is, is how you continue going on and have the strength that God gives to you as the Holy Spirit works in your heart. I would encourage you memorize God's Word. Memorize specific verses. If you're struggling with anger, take a few verses that deal with anger and, and have that as a weapon that you can use so that when you're tempted, you can go back to Scripture on the moment and say, no, be angry and yet do not sin. Some of you are feeding anger. You need to turn off the sources of these things. Some of you need to turn the news off. Some of you need to turn off your TV shows and your movies and your books need to be shut that are just feeding this fire in you. And then confess your anger. Confess to one another when you've expressed that anger outwardly. Parents, parents your children need to see this in, in you. They will see anger in you probably more than others, most others in your life. They need to see tenderness. They need to see a heart that is soft. They need to see you confessing sin and, and talking to your children and saying, this anger was wrong and I'm sorry. And then pray for others when you start to become angry. Cast it aside. He also says to put away wrath. Wrath is anger's older, short-tempered brother. Anger simmers and it heats up from within, but wrath, it bursts out. It's also known as rage. Wrath is a passionate expression of anger within. James tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so there are occasions where we choose righteous actions based on righteous anger, but I know of no place in Scripture where there's any room for human wrath. God is the only one with perfect, perfect judgment, perfect enough that He is able to righteously deal out wrath. It's one of the works of the flesh described in Galatians chapter 5. And if you have a tendency to boil over, then you have to face this enemy and remove him. You must put wrath away. There's no place for it in the life of the Christian. Throw it away. Cast it aside. He says to put away malice. The third word is a kakia. It's a word that's generally used in the New Testament for wickedness or trouble. But in the context of the attitudes of the heart and then the actions that follow those attitudes, kakia refers to ill will, to, to maliciousness, malicious thoughts and speech. Last week, there was a, a politician that tested positive for COVID and someone else came out publicly and asked if it was wrong to wish that the worst would happen. Just asking for a friend. Sometimes malice slips out of our mouths and people recognize it and go, that's disgusting. How could you say something? You need to quit your job. You need to resign. But, you know, we see it outwardly like that and we're shocked that people would say it and yet those very thoughts cross our minds. Those very kinds of ideas, whether it's wishing for someone's death or wishing for their harm or just delighting in their suffering in some way, whether it's small or great. Sometimes malice slips out and we vomit it where everyone can see it. 
but oftentimes it's kept inside. Most of the time, malice is, is harbored within. It's, it's anger's quiet younger sister that converses with anger and it secretly wishes for bad things to happen. The moment that you see malice, remove her. We must put malice away. There's no place for it in the life of the Christian. Throw it away. Cast it aside. He says to put away slander. This fourth word is uh, blasphemion. It's the word that we get blasphemy from. And in the context in which we do this towards God, it means to speak evil of God Himself. But in the context of human relationships, the word is translated to slander. Uh, this is anger that's exhibited through speech. It, it's abusive. Married with malice, slander is used to defame a person's character, to say things that specifically are intended to destroy that person. Slander includes vilifying someone, lying about them, gossiping, or even just leading others to false conclusions by giving some of the details but leaving the important parts out. I didn't lie. I told the truth. Right? And so slander has a lot of different forms. Paul commands Titus, slander no one. There's no place for it in the life of the Christian. Throw it away. Cast it aside. And then he says, put, put away obscene talk from your mouth. Now, I don't think in the context he's referring to cussing in general, although as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, your words are called to be true and honorable and pure and worthy of praise. But here in the context of this passage about anger and evil speech, he's specifically addressing obscene talk that's attack, uh, language of attack. This is the, the name-calling that when you're, that when you're uh, bursting out in anger, when you have these bursts of wrath, uh, you, you, start, you start moving towards trying to, to hurt a person's feelings by the words that you speak. Undermining them. Calling them nasty names. Or even just saying things that you know are going to cut deep. It's one of the easiest ways for anger to manifest itself. And it's one of the easiest ways for anger to destroy someone else. Obscene talk refers to derogatory or abusive speech that's intended to hurt someone. And so the moment you recognize it, if that anger has, has, has risen up and you haven't noticed it and haven't dealt with it in the way that you were supposed to, the moment that you start recognizing this obscene talk, put it away. There is no place for it in the life of the Christians. Throw it away. Cast it aside. And then tacked on to the end of this list of five sins of evil attitudes and speech, God adds a sixth one. But it receives the emphasis of being that it's contained in its own command. He singles it out and He says, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. And it means exactly what it sounds like. Stop lying. Tell the truth. There is no place for lying in the life of the Christian. Stephen Cole tells the story of a minister who noticed a group of boys standing around and there was a small stray dog in between them all. And so he says, what are you doing, boys? Telling lies, said one of the boys. The one who tells the biggest lie gets to keep the dog. The minister was shocked. And so he said to the kids, he says, boys, 
when I was your age, I never thought of telling a lie. Boys looked at one another, a little crestfallen. Finally, one of them shrugged and said, I guess he wins the dog. (laughs) You know, the truth is, we all struggle with telling the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. It manifests itself. But if you have been raised with Christ... If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you were dead in your sin and you've been raised to new life and you now have eternal life today, now living here in this body, your resurrection to new life with Jesus has altered your present walk with the Lord. And one of the ways that the old master sin likes to call out to us is by encouraging us to continue to walk in falsehood. Pastor MacArthur expressed it this way. He says, lying characterizes Satan. John 8, chapter 44 says that. Not God. Titus chapter 1, 2. God cannot lie. When believers lie, they are imitating Satan, not their heavenly Father. They, are all, they of all people should tell the truth. And so why do we lie? We, we, we do it so easily sometimes. Why do we lie? We like to avoid the consequences. We know that we're going to get in trouble with our spouse, with officials, with someone else. People will catch what, what, what really was coming out of our mouths or what we were thinking in our minds, and so we cover it up. We lie to avoid consequences. Sometimes we lie because of pride. We want people to think better of us, and so we twist the truth. We tell falsehoods. We withhold what's really true. Sometimes we lie to fulfill our lusts. And I, and I think as, as, as the Colossians are receiving this letter, they didn't receive this letter because you know, Paul's saying, hey, hypothetically, you, know, you shouldn't be doing these things. Well, I know that this isn't part of your life and then you, you haven't seen these things coming up once in a while. No, I, I think the Colossians struggled with this. Just like I think that here in this room, we struggle with these things. Immorality, lust, anger, wrath, obscene language from your mouth, lying. These are real struggles. They're things that I think the Colossians were dealing with, and they need to be reminded about lust and anger and lying. And I would venture to guess that we need to be reminded about these things as well. Put it away. This does not have a place in your life. If you are a representative of Jesus Christ and you are alive in Him, then throw it away. Cast it aside. And he goes on and he concludes this section with three reasons why we are called to put to death. Three reasons why we are called to put things away. Three reasons why we are called to stop lying. You see, Jesus is greater than all else. He died for your sin. And He rose from the dead and now you have been raised with Christ and your resurrection to new life in G- with Jesus has altered your present walk in this world. And so here are three reasons why we are to live differently now. Number one, we no longer live in our sin. We looked at verse 7 last week, but it bears repeating. Before Christ, you lived in your sins. And the tense that he uses there is of an ongoing, consistent life. It's not, uh, oops, I, I, I did it again. It's, 
I, I lived in this. I, 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 I was in this realm in which I lived my entire life. I served this old Master in which I was under its power. But when, you're, when you put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin, you were lifted out of that realm in which you lived, in which you dwelt, in which you were once a citizen, and He put you in a new kingdom where you serve a new king. When you put your faith in Jesus, He saved you from sin. And you were lifted out of that realm and you sin, and sin no longer has power over you. Now to be sure, you're, you're in this kingdom over here now, but you occasionally get a phone call, don't you? You occasionally get an email saying, hey, do you remember how much fun we used to have? Do you remember how good it felt to be angry? You, know, you remember how satisfying it was to, to, to put somebody down and just to make them look bad? You remember what that felt like? And, and your old master calls from this other realm and he says, come back over. And he makes his demands. But you belong to Jesus now. And Colossians has been very clear, Jesus is greater. He's greater than all of that. Additionally, you remember what it was like to be dead to God. And, and if you are in Christ, then you know the new life that you've been given. And He gave it to you when you died to sin and when you were raised with Christ. Therefore, we have been given the power to walk in the newness of life and to reject these, those things that we are called to put to death and to put in the trash. You are no longer in your sins. Number two, the reason for us to put to death, to, to put away, to stop lying, is we have put on the new self. He says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17-18, to 18, another passage that some of you have memorized. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, something new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, he says. And so when you trusted Jesus and God reconciled you to Himself, in that instant in that instant the old self was gone and he created something new in you and again you've been made alive in christ the old self was at war with god and it existed to, to please and to serve yourself but the new self has been made at peace with him and you now live for his glory you love him you have a desire to to live for him to obey him and there's no in between there's no, I'm, I'm part old, old man and part new man. Uh, it, it's You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You are one or the other. And, and, and there's this question, however, I know it's hanging out there that you may be asking, if I've been raised with Christ and I'm a new creation, then why do I still struggle with sin? Anybody else thinking that? Why, why do I struggle with sin if I'm this new creation and I'm not the old self anymore? If it's completely dead, then then why do I still struggle? Why do I still get angry? Why do I still have lustful thoughts? Why do I still have a struggle with lying? It, yeah, Leslie? It's good to see you today. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here, Leslie. The answer to this question is that the new self still lives in the old body. 
And so we have to contend with the flesh. We must put to death that which is earthly in you. Specifically, the kinds of sins that we've been addressing this last two weeks. Sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And you see, according to verses 9 and 10, you are no longer under obligation to practice those things. These deeds of the old self. Instead, you have to put on the new self. We are today being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Do you remember our series on the shattered image? We talked about how we were created in the image of God. God created us to represent Him. And we are here as His ambassadors. And so when people look at us, when the world and the universe looks at us, when the angelic world looks down on us, we are called to be His representatives and to serve Him, to reflect His glory. And, uh, and then what happened is when sin came into this world, it shattered that image. It, it marred our representation of Him so that we no longer are able to reflect His glory. And, and this is the beauty of what Jesus has done. Jesus, who Colossians tells us is the perfect image of God, the One who is, is the exact representation of God because Jesus Himself is God. He came into the world. He showed us who God the Father is so that when we looked at Jesus and said, what is God like? And I looked at Jesus and go, oh, that's what God is like. He showed us God Himself. He's the exact representation of God and He is the perfect image of God. And now, if you are a Christian, then God's image is being restored in you. In the new self. And the goal is that each day you are being renewed in a way that you look more like Jesus. And as you look more like Jesus, you again reflect God's image. Because Jesus Himself is God. And the more accurately you walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the more accurately you fulfill your call to be an image bearer. Now to be sure, you know, the struggle is real, isn't it? The struggle against sin is real. Temptation is real. The pull of the flesh and the cries of our old master's sin are real. And this is why we have to choose daily what kind of diet we will feed the new self. Verse 10 talks about being renewed in knowledge. And the source of that knowledge is, is God's Word. And I've shared with you many times, I've asked you sometimes, I, I hear people all the time, I, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to spend memorizing or, or, or studying the Scripture. I've just got too many things going on the week. And I ask, did you have, did you have time to eat breakfast this morning? Dinner yesterday? Lunch? Breakfast, snack, popcorn at night. Did, did you feed your body food? And, and all of us recognize that our bodies need physical sustenance. I can't continue on by, by starving myself. I, I, I never say, I don't have time to eat today. Well, occasionally I do, but, but then I quickly feel it. And I know it. And my body suffers for it. And without the proper nourishment, and the right kind of nourishment, I start to, to hurt I start to get tired. I start to lose the energy that I need to accomplish the things that I know I need to do. And so I find the time to eat. In the same way, I, your spirit needs nourishment. And when you starve yourself, you are depriving yourself of what you need to accomplish what God wants to in your life. 
you're cutting yourself off from the source of that knowledge that is God's Word. And so just as you feed your body physical food and sustenance and daily renewal, it's necessary that each one of us are consistently feeding ourselves a healthy spiritual diet of reading God's Word, of studying this book, of memorizing it. I, I put on the back of your, 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 um, your bulletin some ideas. It's just a starter. I, I, you don't have to do what we're doing on the back of the bulletin. You don't have to follow that same program. And, and you don't have to stop there. It's just something to get you going and reading a psalm a day. Memorizing a verse every couple weeks. Just something to, to whet the appetite. And we put those things there because of the importance of, of giving ourselves spiritual nourishment, food, by reading God's Word, memorizing God's Word. And then as we do that, we're able to recognize what God tells us and we obey it. And in all of that, we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we have put on the new self and we must deny the deeds, these deeds of the flesh. But thirdly, there's a third reason that he listens. We have a new partnership. Verse 11, it, 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 the first time I read this, I, I was looking through this passage and we're dealing with these sexual sins in the first part of the passage. We're dealing with, with these sins of anger and, and, and attitudes and, and things that we say that are evil. We're dealing with lying. And then verse 11 falls down. I thought, this just seems out of place. What does verse 11 have to do with all verses 5-10? through 10? What's, what's, what's its place there? But the connection to these verses that precede it is very important. And he says this. He said, here, there is not Greek and Jew. Two religious communities. Two ethnic communities that were separated from one another. The Jews would come home from Jerusalem after a business trip. And when they came into their land, before they stepped across, into the, across the river, what would they do? They'd shake the dust off of their feet and get all that Gentile earth and they were refusing to bring it into Israel. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, would treat them likewise. Circumcised and uncircumcised, referring to, to the religious elements of, of the, this community. Barbarians, Scythians, slave, free. And so it, it crosses over ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, um, different social hierarchies and groups. But Christ is all and in all. You see, we live in this world where people groups are constantly in competition with one another. And whether it's our religious communities, whether it's our cultural groups, your socioeconomic status, the nation that you belong to, there's this competition that's constantly taking place. Oftentimes uh, with enmity. You know, we, many of you are watching the Olympics or highlights of the Olympics. Sometimes it can be exciting to watch, but it becomes very quickly evident how we've separated ourselves. I, I was just looking at the, the tally count on the medals the other day. One of my first thought was, Man, China's beating us in gold. And, and some of those thoughts start going through their, your head, right? And we're separated by our ethnicities, by our people groups, by our nations. And it becomes quickly evident how we are separated and we strive to prove that our country is better than your country. And it's a reflection of some of the animosity that, that beyond the Olympics that's truly out there, that exists between nations, that exists between cultures, that exists between um, different religious groups and social classes. And that animosity creates in this world an environment where lies and malice and anger, oftentimes it just seems really natural. I mean, we have entire government departments that are devoted to uncovering lies of other nations and perpetrating our own 
to make sure that we get ahead. That's just, and we, we don't think twice about it because, well, that's just how the CIA operates. That's what it's there for. We're supposed to be lying because how else are we going to get ahead? And, and so we live in this system, in this world, in this environment where these types of sins are considered essential. But in Christ, all of those barriers are broken down between other believers. In Christ, you and I are part of a new partnership where we we're going to encounter people who used to be part of the Taliban. You're going to encounter people of different groups. I got an email this week. I put her on the back of your, your bulletin. I encourage you to be praying for Sharon. Just a person saying, I, she's, she's from a, a different ethnic group. She's Chinese. And, and, and she's... I, I don't think I believe. I want to believe, but I, I, I don't. And something's getting in the way. And so we can pray for this person that probably has a completely different background than you and I do. And when, when we're in Christ, those barriers are removed and broken down. And so you are part of a new partnership where you stand along former murderers and other types of sinners who also have become a new creation just as I was and just as you have. Therefore, because we have been raised with Christ, there are implications for the church that extend beyond borders, beyond the groups that you're a part of, beyond the, the, the social areas of society where you feel comfortable or not. And we are part of a, a body that transcends language. We are a part of a partnership with people whose entire lives have been different from yours. And together we live by a new law. Next week, we'll take a look at what that looks like. We'll have an opportunity to examine those things that He's called us not to put off, not to put aside, not to put to death, but we're called to put on. My friends, we've been raised to new life. You have been raised to new life. And I want to challenge you as you recognize some of these things, Scripture has its way of working in our hearts, doesn't it? You hear it. You're convicted of it. And, and we've gone through a list this last two weeks. And, and I would venture to guess that one or two or ten of those things have brought about some conviction. And there are specific things that your mind goes to and go, oh, yeah, I did that today. You've been raised to new life, and so execute sin. Kill it. That sin no longer defines who you are. It is who you used to be. And so live in a manner that is consistent with the One in whose image you have been created. My prayer for you is that you would live this week nourished from His Word, that you would experience true renewal that results in God being glorified in you. And may we rejoice in the partnership that we have in Christ as we are together living on purpose. Father in Heaven, what a good God that You are. That You didn't just leave us in death and leave us wallowing in sin. What a good God that You in Your righteous anger didn't say, just let them all die. But You came down You became one of us and You died in our place. You took our sin upon Yourself. All that filth, all that gunk, all those things that we are called to put off and put to death. Jesus became that sin and all of Your wrath was pointed towards Him on the cross. And we're so grateful that You stepped into our world to redeem us and to renew Your image in us once again.
through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we go out from here, Lord, I pray that, that we would not harden our hearts. As Your Spirit has convicted, I, I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit, control us by Your Spirit as we walk in obedience and say, okay, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to take that off. I'm going to throw it away. And I'm going to do differently now. So help us to soften our hearts, to walk with you. And might the image of Jesus Christ be evident in each one of us as we go out from here. Amen.